This time of year at church, we talk about Christmas. We also use the word Advent. Anybody ever heard the word Advent before? Okay, good. Most of you. The word Advent simply means coming. We celebrate the fact that Jesus came to earth and we look forward to the day when Jesus returns, when he comes again. We remember that Jesus is the light of the world. As Bryson lit our third candle on our Advent wreath this morning, we're reminded that Jesus brought with him at his first coming hope. He also brought joy and he brought love. And when Jesus comes again, he will bring with him hope and joy and love. And in between, while we find ourselves as Christians and as the church between the comings of Jesus, His first coming to earth and His return, His second coming, we might be tempted to ask the question, where is the hope, the joy, the love, and the peace of Jesus? The answer, if we're serious followers of Jesus Christ, is that His hope, His joy, his love are in us. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 14, the Apostle John gave instruction to the church about love. This church found itself, much like we do, between the comings of Jesus. John the Apostle was able to see Jesus with his own eyes to hear Jesus with his own ears and to touch Jesus with his own hands. But many of the believers to whom he wrote in this letter had no such experience with Jesus. By the time these people had come to faith, Jesus had already ascended back to his Father's throne in heaven. They didn't have first-hand knowledge like John had. They had knowledge that was passed down through the first disciples and apostles who were there to witness Jesus with them in physical form. But John wanted these believers to understand that Jesus was nevertheless real. He was present in their midst and in their lives. And they were to live as though he was right there with them. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, then God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because of the Spirit that He has given to us. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In those verses, you heard the word love in some form or fashion 15 times. You also heard the verb sent, S-E-N-T, three times. What I'd like to do with you in the next few moments as we examine these verses closer is talk about how God's love relates and is shown through the sending of His Son. In order to do so, I think we need to understand love, if that's possible. Love is just a four-letter word, L-O-V-E. We can spell it. Even young children know how to spell it. We say it often. We love pizza. We love the St. Louis Cardinals. We love Christmas time. We love ice cream. We love our families. We love God. We love this. We love that. We use that in many different ways. Love conveys a sense of liking something, preferring something. It also conveys a sense of deep admiration, appreciation, or affection. And then there's sometimes this word love is used, and it's used in a sense that's almost mystical and unexplainable. Really, you could say love all you wanted to and define love all you wanted to, but it can't be defined in words. It has to be demonstrated in action. Sacrifice. Genuine care and compassion. It is the last of these three types of love that John wants the church to understand. God loves us. Doesn't just like us, have preferential care for us. Isn't just tied to us out of some sense of admiration. But He loves us. He showed us He loved us. This is the same type of love that John tells these believers they are to have for God. Not just that you like Him enough to show up and worship in Him on Sunday mornings. Not just that you appreciate Him for making you or blessing you with the financial means to purchase things and live in this world. But a sense in which you are willing to give your entire life to Him. And lay everything down for Him. This is also the same type of love that John expects and commands these people to have for one another. Not just a 
well, I like you enough, I can put up with you today. Not just, I admire that person because they speak well, or because they serve wholeheartedly, or because they're gifted in a certain area. But a love that says, I am willing to put you above myself. I'm willing to love you as myself. Be you neighbor, friend, family member, or even enemy. Love is a little word, but it's quite complex, is it not? In fact, it was just a few days ago, I was talking with one of my friends after lunch. And we've had this type of conversation before when we come to the end of speaking about serious matters and we get it to boil down to what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, right? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he goes on to say, and the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it sounds so wonderful when we say it and when we hear it. But then it blows our minds. And it causes us to scratch our heads when we hear that word love. After all, what does it mean? How can you really grasp it? And then how can you really share it with others? In fact, whenever Jesus told people to love the Lord their God, they wondered what that meant. How do we do that? And then when he goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself, one guy even said, who's my neighbor? How do I love them? What exactly do you mean? God's love, this type of love about which John is speaking and writing, is not a love that can be put merely into words it can be written about, he did write about it, it can be spoken about, and we do speak about it. But it has to be seen to be understood. It has to be demonstrated in order to be comprehended. And John ties God's love directly to his sending of his son. Action, activity, demonstration. John encouraged these believers to love one another because love is from God. You notice he calls them beloved. Right out of the gate, he wants them to know that they are the loved children of their Father in heaven. And as God's children, they are to show love to their spiritual siblings. Why? Because love comes from God, and if you love, you're born of God and you know God. Now we might tend to think the opposite of how John phrases the end of verse 7 there. But he doesn't say, if you know God, you love. He says, if you love, then you're born of God. He doesn't say, if you know God, then you love. He says, if you love, then you know God. And then he goes on to put it in a negative sense. The one who does not love does not know God. God is love. 
This is kind of one of those tests like you took in college, you know, that was just a pass-fail thing. You don't get graded on how much percentage of your heart do you love God with. You don't get the opportunity to say, well, I love this person but not that one. Or, I love this person this much but not that much. He says you love or you don't. And if you love, you know God. And if you don't love, you don't know God. It's quite that simple. Yet it's really that difficult, isn't it? And I think that the believers, when they read these two verses, would have gone, man... God loves me, I know that, but do I really love him? Do I really love the others around me? And in verse 9, it's almost like he tries to remind them of how God showed his love to them. How exactly that they know that God loves them in order that they might understand whether or not they pass this test of loving people around them. By this the love of God was manifested. That big word manifested just simply means revealed or shown or demonstrated. God wasn't up in heaven saying, hi, I love you. God sent his son Jesus to earth to show us he loved us. God's love was manifested. But John doesn't just say manifested to us. He says manifested in us. That is, Jesus Christ didn't just come to this earth to observe people around him. He came to live with people. God with us. God's love is tied to the sending of his son. Notice verse 9, God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent His Son to provide us life. And really, this is what love produces, is it not? It produces life. Think of your vegetable garden. When you go out to plant those little seeds in the garden, or you take those sprouting plants and you put them in the soil, you care for them. You place them in some good dirt. There's a difference between dirt, isn't there? And you mound up the dirt just so, so that the plant is stable and able to withstand the watering that may come and the sun that will beat down on it. And you also push the soil up around it so that it can collect the water that it needs to be hydrated and then to grow and to produce whatever vegetable you're growing. Love implies life. Just as you take care of that garden, you love that garden, you provide care for those plants, love produces life. God's love for you produces life in you. Think about this. 
Where there is no love, there really is no life. That might sound like a big statement to make. But think of some of the things that you love. Where you find your love, you find your life being spent, do you not? And things that you don't care about. Maybe you're apathetic towards them, or maybe you just downright hate them. You don't find any life there. Maybe every once in a while there's a little flicker or glimmer of hope, but you don't see it. Because where there is no love, there there is no life. John wanted these believers to understand that if they wanted to live in Christ, they were going to have to remember the love of Christ that He provided them. And they were also going to have to extend that love to others. There's been a lot of talk amongst evangelical churches about why denominations are dying, right? And why churches are are closing. And why even the Christian faith itself is shrinking. I'll share this with you. What I believe to be true. Sure, doctrinal compromises have been made over the years, but it's not doctrine that's the problem most of the time. Church practices have changed. Really, times have changed, haven't they? Just think of living right now in 2018 versus 20 years ago or when you were born. The big difference in the way the world works. But church practices and relevance aren't usually the issue. It's something deeper. Yes, deeper than doctrine. And even deeper than practices and programs. It's the heart of God's people. Where there is love, there is life. Where there is no love, there is no life. I'd make a bold assertion at this point. The reason... Christianity is waning. The reason churches are closing and denominations are shrinking is because there is not love. Where there is love, there is life. And this is why Jesus came to this earth. The Father wanted to give us life in His name. Think about the times at First Baptist Church in Walnut Ridge. You've been most excited about your personal spiritual journey. Think about the times as a church body, collectively, we have celebrated the most. Do you see hatred or do you see love? You see love. You see people serving each other, taking care of one another. You see a church united together, loving its community. You see a church, a family of believers, children of God, praising God in their singing, telling Him how much they love Him. You see a church generously giving because they love the Lord, the lost world around them, and the family of faith to which they belong. God sent His Son so that we can have life. God also sent His Son... So that we can know His love. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, 
but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verse 10, John is helping these believers understand that love is really not somebody who is lesser thinking good of someone who is greater. It's not that we loved God. I mean, think about that. In one sense, that's kind of easy, is it not? We are imperfect people. We're sinful. We know that our hearts are evil. We can examine the way we've lived this past week. We can go back to actions, wrongful actions we've committed in the past and realize that we're just not perfect people. When you look at God, on the other hand, who can legitimately point out a flaw in that character? He's good. He's great. He's holy. Sure, people file complaints and they speak ill against the Lord, but we know as Christians that those claims are unfounded. We have a, perfectly, a perfect Heavenly Father who loves us. Really? Would it be that difficult in that sense for sinful people to love a holy God, for imperfect people to love a perfect God? We want to love that God. We want to serve that God. We want to be with that God. John says, no, the amazing thing is not how much you love God, it's how much God loves you. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. He loved us so much, in fact, that He sent His Son, His only begotten perfect Son, holy in character, just like He was, to be the propitiation. That big fancy word means sacrifice for our sins. The substitute that paid the punishment for the wrong we have done. Whew. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, But God demonstrated His love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus was born there in the stable in Bethlehem and laid in the manger, Jesus came to save the very mother that gave birth to Him. Jesus came to save the very innkeeper who had turned Joseph away. Jesus came to save the lowly shepherds who were out in the fields whom nobody else appreciated. Jesus came to save those majestic kings from the east who had come in all their power and glory to pay homage to him. Jesus was sent into this world to be the propitiation for our sins. We talk about Jesus being placed on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. But yet we see a glimpse of the Father's willingness to send His own Son to be this propitiation even before the cross. We see it there at His birth. You remember that Christmas song? Away in a manger. It was a manger. It was a feeding trough. A place of nourishment where the animals would come to eat their feed. Jesus laid there to provide for the world. To be the one who would ultimately give his life so that we might have life. The one who would give up his own life to be the propitiation for our sins so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and made whole and made right with God. 
God sending his son shows us just how much he loves us. He's willing to love us even when we can't love ourselves. He's willing to love us in spite of the sins we've committed, in spite of the failures that have occurred and the mistakes that we've made. God loves us and he showed us when he sent his son. But John doesn't stop there. He said, beloved, if God so loved us, if he loved us like that, if he loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. Now this gets big. It's almost like he's saying with the same love that Jesus has loved you, you ought to extend that love to others around you. That's a challenge. And then John reminds us just how hard the challenge is to cope with. He says, no one has seen God at any time. We stop and think about this. He's right. Jesus came to the earth. They saw him in human flesh. But they didn't see the face of their father in heaven with their two eyes. No one's seen him. In fact, even Moses when he got a glimpse of God passing through on Mount Sinai, was only told that he could look at God's hind parts, the heels of his feet, so to speak. If God hit him in the cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand because he told Moses, you can't see my face and live. It's just impossible. I'm too great. So John is saying, I want you to love God and love each other with the same love that God has for you, the God that you have never even seen. What a challenge. But then he says, if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. What people really need to see in this world is not the face of their Father in heaven. No man can see his face and live. What they need to see is his love. And they see his love in your eyes. They hear it in your voice. They witness it in your actions. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, then God abides in us. That means he lives in us. He dwells in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. God doesn't just love you enough to look at you. He loves you enough to live with you and in you. And then in verse 14. We find that God sending His Son doesn't just provide us with life and doesn't just show us His love, but it also gives us light. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John could write this because he had seen with his own two eyes he was testifying with his own mouth that he physically saw Jesus on the earth. He was sharing that message with those to whom he was writing. That the Father had sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But we know this world, don't we? 
It's a dark place. It's full of evil and wickedness. The thoughts of men's hearts are oftentimes only evil continually. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who could even know it? And when you get that many sinful people in that one place called earth, all kinds of chaos ensues. Idolatry, immorality, hatred between one person and another. Wars between one nation and another. Lying, cheating, stealing, murder, adultery. You could name every sin that's ever been committed and tally it up. And you'd come to realize just how dark this place is. But Jesus wasn't scared of the dark. He came into this world. He came to this earth to provide light. To show us the way of salvation. John says we saw Him. We testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Maybe some of you remember about a year and a half ago in the news. The story of the boys being trapped in the caves in Thailand. You remember some of this? It was a soccer team that had gone out with their coach just to go explore some caverns. They kept walking and crawling and climbing and eventually they got lost deep inside this darkness. They couldn't find their way out. Well, the rainy season had ensued and the access to the cave was blocked with water. They couldn't get out where they had come in from because of the water, but really the big problem was that they couldn't even find their way back to where they had come in. This is what sin has done to the human race. God created Adam and Eve in His image, and He created a good world, a place where He could be honored and glorified, and a place where the human beings that He had made in His own image could honor and glorify Him and lived in harmony with the rest of creation and perfect love towards each other. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, something happened instantaneously and immediately. Though their minds were open to understand the knowledge of good and evil, the lights went out. Their hearts were darkened. They didn't want to see God, they wanted to hide from Him. They no longer loved each other. In fact, they kind of put each other down. Eve tempted her husband and Adam threw his wife under the bus. Dark world. But then God came. He wanted to know where they were. And when Jesus came, it wasn't any different. He came into a dark world, a world that was full of sin and hatred and violence, a world that was full of idolatry and immorality, a world that was rampant with wickedness. He left the throne of His Father in heaven to come into this dark world. And when He came as the true light, 
He gave men and women the opportunity to see the light, to see the truth, to seek Jesus for salvation. God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, to be the light in the darkness. Could you imagine those boys trapped in that cave in Thailand for days upon end? Not knowing where they were. Not knowing for some time if anyone else knew where they were. Not knowing if anyone could come and save and rescue them. Not being able to see in the darkness their friends. But could you imagine when that first cave diver came in? And though all they had witnessed around them was darkness, and though all they knew was despair and depression, and they thought they were going to die, in that second, when that light began to shine and grow, all of a sudden the hope in their hearts began to swell. And they thought, We've got something here. Maybe we, we, we've got a chance. Maybe we can be saved out of this cave. Maybe we can be delivered. And slowly, as one by one, these divers began to volunteer, risking their own lives to save these boys trapped in the cave. And one by one, these boys began to appear out of the cave. Hope became reality. Sadness turned to joy. Families were reunited. Tears were shed. People laughed and they cried. Because light had come to the darkness. A dark situation. This is the coming of Jesus. He provided light in the darkness. And one day when he returns and comes again, the light will once again shine in the darkness. And it will be the most glorious light anyone has ever seen. We'll want to shield our eyes because it's bright. But we'll want to look at the same time because we've never seen anything like it before. I've been reading a book recently. It was given to me by a, a lady I met in town. Her name's Miss Gloria. The book is called Imagine Heaven. And when I first picked up this book to read it, I thought, I don't know about this. People talking about their near-death experiences. Heart stopped beating, pronounced dead at the hospital or at the scene of an accident. And then they say that they go to heaven to have this experience with the one who created them. And I'm still not sure that I can quite swallow every single one of these encounters and say, all of this is true. But there's something in this book that stood out to me. From these encounters Christians have had after they've gone on to be with the Lord in, in their own personal testimonies. I can't argue with them. I've never had one like this before. But they'll say when they enter into what they call heaven, everything produces its own light. It's just like light everywhere. You can see through everything. And the brightest one of all is Jesus. Some folks claim to have met him when they've had these experiences. And then they talk about how there's life everywhere. 
There's no darkness, death, decay, anything like it. But then the thing that stood out to me most in this book, regardless of what you think about these near-death experiences and how skeptical I am about reading some of these accounts, in virtually every conversation that this person Jesus has with these people, he asks them this question, how much have you loved? Do you imagine that? You get into heaven, and as great as like evangelism explosion is to teach you how to witness to people, the first question Jesus says is not, why should I let you in here? It's how much have you loved? Wow. It's a little overwhelming, isn't it? What would you say today if I asked you that question? Right here. Right now. Between the comings of Jesus, he came to this earth to give us life, to show us his love, to bring us to the light. One day he's coming again. We'll see him in the light. We'll know his love and we'll be alive forever and in eternity. But right here and right now, we're caught in the in-between. In a dark world. In a world full of hatred. In a world where there's death and decay all around us. How right now, between Jesus coming to save you for your sins when he died on the cross and Jesus coming again to take you home with him, how are you loving? How much are you loving? How do you love the Lord? Do you love him with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? How much do you love your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Even those, those enemies that you have... Do you love them and do you pray for them? The family that you're a part of. Do you love them with the love that God has for his children? With the love that Christ has for his bride? Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to know and experience the love that God has for you. He loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to live life as a human being and then to die on the cross as a man. Not for his own sins, but for the sins we committed. And if you trust that he died for you, if you believe that he rose again, if you call upon him as Lord, you'll know the greatest love you could ever know. Maybe you need to come to know his love today. Place your faith in him and call upon him as the master of your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't fully realized the greatness of God's love and how he's able to extend his love through you to others. Maybe you just need to spend a few moments praying for someone, committing to show someone love who needs to know that God loves them. Maybe God's 
been speaking to your heart in a different way this morning. Perhaps you'd, you need to come to the altar and pray for something or someone. Maybe you just need to come and speak with me about a matter. Maybe God's calling you to join our church. Maybe God is asking you to surrender your life to preaching ministry or to missions to go across the world and tell people about Jesus. I'll be standing down here in the front as this invitation song is played, as God calls you this morning, would you come to Him?